0: An Undeceptions podcast.
1: Modern people have taken a perfectly great idea, and that is democratic political self-determination. Democratic political self-determination. We should choose, be able to choose our own governments, choose our own leaders. A dem, a democratic political self-determination—a great idea—and we have elevated it to an ultimate spiritual reality, and the very meaning of life. We feel like unless I I have to be me, I have to live my way, I have to live as I decide is right or wrong, and if I don't have the freedom to live as I want to live, my life is meaningless. That's how we are. That's what our culture tells us. And if that's your understanding of life, and it is our understanding of life here, the (laughs) omni-god, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God is a nightmare. An absolute nightmare.
0: Tim Keller is the founding pastor of New York's Redeemer Presbyterian Church and the author of several New York Times best selling books. I think it's also fair to say he's something of a Christian prophet for our secularizing 21st century.
1: Sartre said in Being in Nothingness if there is a God, we can't be free. If there's a God who sees everything, then we're dehumanized. If there's a God who controls everything, that's unconscionable. And if we're free, then there's no god. And if there's a god, then we're not free. Period. And that's the reason why David, that's the reason why Jonah, and that's the reason why so many of us don't want to we don't want to be we don't want to we want to escape this all ever-present god. We don't want to be around. We don't want to believe he exists. <laughs>
0: Tim's preaching is kind of weird. It has none of the rhetoric and celebrity flair you might expect from a big name American evangelical. And yet believers and skeptics alike will often say they find themselves hanging on his every word. And what's especially strange is that when you strip it all back, Keller is preaching a kind of old fashioned gospel of human sin, divine judgment, and Christ's offer of salvation. He's fond of saying, You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. He's the co-founder of the Christian think tank and media outlet, The Gospel Coalition, and he established the Redeemer City to City organisation, which mentors pastors and assists in church planting in urban centres all around the world. This may actually prove to be his most significant legacy. City to City is doing amazing things in surprising places. But in 2020, Tim revealed that his work might be cut short. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, a disease that normally proves fatal in just a few years. So it was a real privilege to talk with him on my recent trip to the US. On medical advice, we couldn't be in the same room, but I was grateful for his openness, his generosity and stamina We accidentally recorded 83 minutes with him. I was keen to get his perspective on, well, pretty much everything, but especially the future of Christianity in the West. At times, this is an intimate conversation, and at one point I even find myself asking him for pastoral advice. But mainly, this is a chat with one of the world's most trusted undeceivers. Whether you believe or doubt, I'm sure that what you're about to hear will bring fresh clarity about the Christian faith in doubting times. I'm John Dixon, and this is a Masterclass in Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan's new book, Good News of Our Limits, by Sean McGeever. Each episode, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture, or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. With the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime. What investigating death teaches us about the meaning of life by acclaimed cold-case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, Tim Keller's reputation for preaching on the world stage, for theological rigor and cultural analysis. Find a delightful balance in this self-effacing pastor at the microphone. Hi, John. Thank you so much for giving us your time. I am glad to be with you. Keller is a graduate of Bucknell University, Gordon-Comwell Theological Seminary, and Westminster Theological Seminary. He was ordained by the Presbyterian Church in America and served for nine years in Hopewell, Virginia, a town very different from where he ended up in Manhattan. You began your ministry in a small town at a time when America was often described as a Christian nation. Uh, What hindrances to genuine Christian faith did you encounter in that context?
1: Well, in that context, and, and I was also in a, in a Southern town. So the way, uh, America works is the South, the Southeast is the most, um, conservative part of the country. It was really the, uh, I'd have to say the hindrances of genuine Christian faith were moralism. In other words, an understanding of Christianity as being, um, uh, a matter of uh, following moral codes, going to church all the time, um, being very or even even being sold out for Jesus. And uh, it was very, very clear when you talked to the people, they were very much in a evangelical Christian culture. And yet at the same time, it was also very clear there wasn't much actual spiritual vitality at all. So it was a moralism. Uh, also, it was deeply enculturated. So to be a Christian was to be uh, a flag-waving American. Uh, it was very God and country. The other thing, as I would say, it was, even though it was a very blue-collar town, the town I was in, only 5% of the um, high school graduates of, the, of Hopewell High School went on and went to university or college, only 5%. So... Uh, it, there was also an anti-intellectualism about the place so that people's understanding of the Bible was very common sense in other words if, it's, if the Bible says this is very clear it just says that therefore don't tell me that there's some other way of reading it so you might say frankly uh, moralistic fundamentalism was the real uh, barrier to a vital Christianity
0: it might surprise some to think that that was a hindrance um, but yeah, it makes it makes <laughs> sense was it was it very different Um you know over the next decades in new york were the was the skepticism you faced way more sophisticated which would be the cliche of course or was it the same just dressed up differently well
1: john the way your question is phrased i almost have to say yes and no because on the one hand it was very different it was very more sophisticated it was secularism okay and you say, well, that's totally different than fundamentalism, but there definitely is a, a secular fundamentalism. It's, um, uh, first of all, it's moralistic. It's like, if you're, if you are, you're not bigoted and you uh, care about the poor and you vote for the, the proper enlightened um, political movements, then you're all right. Um, so there's a moralism against, you know, we're the enlightened ones, you're the bigoted ones. I'd even go as far as to say there's a kind of anti-intellectualism, which sounds really strange. I mean, my my church in New York, uh, at one point we did a survey and we had something like 2,000 people coming.
0: Tim's now talking about his time with Redeemer Presbyterian Church, which he and Kathy planted in Manhattan in 1989. Fun fact, I'm told he was actually the third choice to head up that church plant. A pretty good third choice, it turns out. It's now a thriving multi-campus, multi-function ministry, engaging thousands of New Yorkers.
1: And i discovered that 15% of the people either had doctorates or were working on them. And when I thought, oh, wow, well, that actually was very, very typical of, of center city of Manhattan. And in spite of all that, there definitely is an anti-intellectualism. There was a cancel culture in New York City a long time before it became, before it got a name, where if you just didn't have the right views, you were just shut out, period. And oh, by the way, don't forget the new atheists. You know, uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and those folks, they came out uh, 15, 20 years ago, almost 15 years ago, I guess. And boy, even a lot of secular people called them secular fundamentalists because of their combativeness and their anger and their unwillingness to to speak civilly. So there's a sense in which it was very different. Um, The objections to Christianity were different. But on the other hand, there really is a kind of fundamentalism of the secular left.
0: PhDs and Manhattan intellect are not necessarily a path to reality. The American social psychologist, Professor Jonathan Haidt, has shown that high IQ and extensive education don't necessarily predict better access to true beliefs. What they do predict is a greater capacity to rationalize our existing beliefs to ourselves and to others. What role do you think intelligence and education play in people's engagement with christian faith positively or negatively
1: well it's true in a place like hopewell virginia which is the small town i we were talking about to start with um it's an anti-elitist anti-intellectual it was a blue-collar community in which people didn't trust the elites they trusted their friends their neighbors and there was a strong confirmation bias
0: you probably already know this, but confirmation bias is a psychological term for the way we tend to interpret information in a way that conforms to what we already believe. Christians do it, of course, so do atheists. We do it in our intellectual pursuits and, of course, in our personal lives.
1: Don't bother me with books or scholarship. You know, my friends say this, and that's just the way it is. Well, this is where John Height, who I do know somewhat, actually, uh a remarkable guy, by the way, you know, secular Jewish guy. But boy, does he understand, I think, religion better than an awful lot of religious people. And he what he would say is because so many secular people say, well, we we actually inhabit the heights of culture. You know, we're in charge of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the New York Times, the Washington Post and Hollywood. And by the way, they are. And so that's where they get their confirmation bias. We don't have to think about it. Because we 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 uh, occupy the heights of culture, and so they can rationalize their uh, skepticism because they say, "Well, look at all these smart people, and look at, you know, look at all the best universities believe what we believe." And you know, oddly enough, that's really not that different than my blue collar people in Hopewell saying, "Oh, don't tell me what the scientists tell me," you know, about vaccines, for example. Don't tell me what the scientists tell me. All I know is that my Uncle Joe says that, you know, it's a con. And that's it. I don't really see that as a whole lot different than saying, well, everybody at, you know, the entire sociology department at Harvard says this.
0: It's not uncommon for people to seek God during times of hardship. And in some ways, the pandemic has been no different. But even before COVID, a growing number of Americans were moving away from organized religions. And the pandemic didn't do anything to stop that trend. A survey this month from the Pew Research Center found 29 percent said they had no religious affiliation. That's up six points from 2016, with the millennial generation leading that shift. So with the, pandemic dry- the West is apparently becoming a less religious place. In 2018, the Pew Research Centre found that although the vast majority of people around the world still say they're religious, young adults are often much less likely to see themselves as religious. Out of 106 countries surveyed by Pew, young adults were significantly less likely to say they were religious in 41 of those 106 countries. No prizes for guessing. That includes places like the US, Canada, and a bunch of European countries. So is this an irreversible trajectory? Well,
1: okay, Uh, Europe, then Canada and Australia, then the US. So you might say the, you know, the Western world in that order seemed like Europe went very secular. People just left the church. Uh, Canada and Australia lagged a bit but they were ahead of United States. And even 10 years ago I think most people are saying maybe 15 years ago for sure that the United States was very different that Australia, Canada, Europe was going secular but America it's strong and and you know evangelicalism actually grew to almost I know it's hard to believe in Australia but probably there was a growth there that went on from about the 70s to the 90s and and at least people who identified as born-again evangelicals were something like 30% of the population, which is just hard to imagine. As as late as like 1990, 95, something like that. But then, of course, we seem like we have started to go the way of all, not the way of all flesh, but the way of all West flesh. Um, but here's here's my, my thoughts. Why well, I just don't believe it just continues to go down and down and down. One reason is um, that, as you know, in the non-white and the non-Western world, Christianity has grown quite a bit. Um, And I do believe that the future of evangelical Christianity is that that increasingly the leaders and the theologians will be non-Western and non-white. It's going to take a long time. It just does. You know that. It, it, It takes time to produce the same kind of theologians and so on, but... What that's going to do is it's going to create a credibility for evangelicalism that it doesn't have right now. Uh, number two, I do think, and I you mean, I, I guess this is going out and somebody's going to crucify us both. But uh, the fact is Australia, Canada, United States and Europe are going to be increasingly non-white. Because our fertility rates, the white people's fertility rates goes down. And the fact is that non-white people are less individualistic. They're less secular. They're more community-minded. They're more open to religion. And there we go. Uh, thirdly, I would say that secularism, uh, I believe what Ross Douthat, you know, he's a he's a Catholic guy, bit of a friend of mine. I wish I knew him better. He's just too busy to get to know well, but writes for the New York Times. He would say secularism is half exhausted that the relativism of secularism the anti-supernatural the anti-spiritual the old-fashioned hard secularism to some degree is dying off in spite of dawkins and hitchens and people like that i would say john 30 years ago if after um a a, a church service. More well, forty years ago, after church service, I said, "I'm going to meet people down down front. Anybody wants to ask me questions, I get a lot of questions about how could there be miracles? Hasn't science disproved that?" And that th- th- those issues started going away. Younger people are not quite as secular in that sense. They're not. They they're more open to the spiritual. They're not as rationalistic. We know that they just aren't. On the other hand, you might say the secular self, the idea of a completely emancipated identity, self that ha- I have the right to define my own reality and my own morality. That's still very, very strong. And even though it looks like it's destroying our community, it's destroying, <laughs> it's undermining the family, it's making people incredibly lonely. Uh, Ross that I think he's right, saying that, that, you might call it the modern self, is still very, very, very strong. It's seductive. Uh, I can be whoever I wanna be. I wanna live any way I wanna live. And even though it's really harming us, it's still pretty strong. So there, there's, a, there's a certain amount of exhaustion with secularism, and yet I, it's not dying. And yet I wonder about its long-term ability to really serve the human race. So that's the limitations of secularism, the demographics of both secularism and the West, um, the inevitable multi-ethnic future of, of uh, the leadership of the evangelical church, all these things i think bode fairly well
0: you mentioned a moment ago that some of the questions are changing the sorts of questions that they ask you at the front of church do you think the classical intellectual questions like the existence of god the reliability of the bible etc have any currency amongst doubting folks today or have these really faded to the background
1: uh neither they've just gone um they're not primary uh they're secondary now so one of the things i found interesting was more and more i'm i'm booting my evangelism and apologetics off of pascal's famous ponce
0: Tim is referring to pensée, uh, literally, thoughts, written by the famous French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal. I have a mate who's a mathematics don at Oxford. G'day, Sam. And he reckons Pascal was actually a pretty stellar mathematician. Anyway, Pascal is often ridiculed by sceptics today because of what's called Pascal's wager. In passing, he once wrote that if Christianity turns out to be false... Christians and sceptics neither win nor lose very much at all. There's no downside in believing, in other words. But, he said, if Christianity turns out to be true, the Christian wins big time and the sceptic loses badly, if you know what I mean. So why not go with the assumption that Christianity is true? What have you got to lose? Now, it's unclear Pascal intended this as a formal, factual argument in favour of Christianity. But it's not a bad argument for deciding to investigate the proposition that Christianity is true. I'm hoping to convince Professor Sam to help us do a whole show on Pascal. So I'll keep you posted. Anyway, Tim is talking about another of Pascal's pieces of advice about Christianity in the public square. Namely, that humans need to know both that Christianity is rationally defensible and that it is desirable. First
1: show people that christianity is rationally respectable you know it's 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 reasonable that's all number one number two get them to want it to be true in other words that means show its personal offers the things that it can do and then finally he says and then show them that it is true so i i have found that for example the the first layer. And I'll give you a couple examples of why this would The first layer I try to, do, I try to work with is uh, leveling the playing field. So I want to get a non-believer off this idea that um, I've got faith and he or she doesn't. I want to say you do realize that um, everybody basically has a view of the world based on uh, a set of assumptions that you can't prove. Therefore, in a sense, all knowledge starts with faith. But I said, that doesn't mean that you can't rationally weigh the different worldviews and say which ones are more consistent, which ones within within themselves, which ones actually explain the world the way we, we see it, which ones are best even at being livable. They say, you can't prove a worldview. Therefore, you might say the burden of proof is kind of equal on every, nobody can prove it. And yet at the same time, you can weigh them. So I start that way. And even though I get a lot of, especially from some guys, and I mean, guys, a lot of young white men really just don't believe that they, they believe they're totally objective and absolutely rational and so on. And I, I actually, if I point them to Alistair McIntyre's book, uh, Who's Justice, Which Rationality, their head starts to hurt.
0: Just quickly, Alistair McIntyre is regarded as one of the most influential moral and political philosophers of the last half century, and is openly Christian, but he is not easygoing uh let say so, so, it so mean, did yeah. mine
1: yeah <laughs> it which rationality and uh you know uh but uh it's the other arm of one but anyway you so you level the playing field then rather than go most people aren't immediately i think as a ready their eyes glaze over if you really go in to too much. And both you and I have written a lot of these books, okay, <laughs> brother. But uh, if you just go too much into the proofs of God, or uh, even the evidence for the resurrection, things like that, they're just not there. The real question is, why would I want this thing to be true? Uh, they very often have a very poor understanding of what Christianity actually offers. And so there, I guess you might call it existential or, or uh, apologetics, where you're saying, Okay, well, how do you get meaning in life? Here's what Christianity does. How do you get an identity? Here's what Christianity does. How do you face suffering? Here's what here's how Christianity helps. Um, and, and then if eventually they get to the place where they say, huh, this is actually pretty nice, but I mean, how do I know it's true? Finally, they're motivated. And then actually, even if they don't want a little bit of a rehearsal of the evidence, they ought to get it because they're going to have bad time even if somebody says i want to be a christian i think you do have to rehearse the fact that there's not proofs but pretty strong evidence
0: and tim reflects on some of the common blockers to belief after this short break
1: ah hello it's nice to see you all here now as the more perceptive of you probably realized by now this is hell (laughs) and i am the devil good evening Uh, now you're all here for eternity ooh which I hardly need tell you, is a heck of a long time. Um, So you'll all get to know each other pretty well by the end. But for now, I'm going to have to split you up into groups. Will you stop screaming? (laughs) Thank you. Now, murderers, murderers over here, please. Thank you. Uh, Looters and pillagers over here. Thieves, if you could join them. And lawyers, you're in that (laughs) lot.
0: That's comedian Rowan Atkinson, of course, playing the devil, overseeing his audience's first day in hell. It's a sketch that neatly summarises how people today think of hell. It's either a big joke or it's an idea so monstrous as to prove the cruelty of religion. It's one of what Tim Keller calls the defeater beliefs that he addresses in his best-selling 2008 book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Tim says hell is near the top of the list in a range of questions that challenge the fairness of Christianity. If God is a God of justice, how on earth can he condemn people to eternal punishment?
1: C.S. Lewis's basic understanding is that hell is something you choose and you know, it's interesting, I, I read Don Carson, Don is no, Don's no liberal, okay? <laughs> indeed not. <laughs> indeed not, indeed not, okay. But I tend to read Don's, you know, his uh, his reflections on, you know, he's got, he's got uh, about two-thirds of the McShane reading calendar, he's got those reflections called For The Love of God. Fairly often he points out that, uh, like in Revelation, uh, the judgment of God comes down on people and they still don't repent. The judgment comes down; they still don't repent. Of course, even in even in Luke sixteen, it's a parable. But um, you know, the uh, the rich man in, in in hell is not saying "Let me out of here." Instead, he's just saying, "This is unfair." And there's a lot of I think there's a, a there's a lot of um, uh, credence behind the idea that we that if we live forever, in other words, if our souls go on, we have a tendency to keep going in the same direction. And if you really want to, uh, the idea I would rather reign in hell than rule, you know, rule in hell than serve in heaven is is something that people choose. It's also, by the way, unfair if there is no hell for a lot of people. I mean, I, the reason why I've, I, here's what I would say is that that 20 years ago, the very idea of a God of judgment and justice just did not fly with secular people. But younger people are much, much less willing to forgive They feel like that's a lack of justice. My biggest problem right now in pastoring people is that younger people feel like that forgiveness. I'm actually writing a book about it right now, John, if I ever get it done. But that forgiveness is being undermined by modern secular understandings of justice. You're never supposed to forgive somebody who's wronged you because that would be unjust. So I'm actually finding that that the idea of a God of judgment that sends people to hell is not not quite as... um, you know, unpopular as it used to be. That's what makes me say, I do think the idea of hell, if you're able to cast it as something that people choose and, 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 and in a way they, they're there because they continue to choose it. Uh, I think there's, I think, I do think there's some, uh, you can get some traction with that.
0: I know I'm changing gears here a bit, but there are some other fairness questions. Like why would God and, especially Christians, be so interested in who I can and can't love?
1: At this point, the the biggest reason why people find traditional Christianity unpalatable is because of its attitude towards sex. And therefore, I do think that going forward, it is not that hard for Christians to, to admit racism Admit injustice of the past in the church. Um, there's an awful lot of things the Bible says about justice. So when people say the church has been on the side of injustice, uh, it you, you repent, you admit where it has been, and then you go to the, what the Bible says, and you you show what great resources the Bible has uh, to be seeking social reform, etc. cetera. Sexuality is different. <laughs> um and it's the, therefore, it's really the, the place where many people believe that because expressing myself sexually is crucial to being an authentic self, therefore, Christianity is essentially a, an enemy of healthy identity. It's, a, it's an enemy of healthy selfhood. And actually, that is the biggest apologetic issue. I do think it's the biggest one we have. It's the I can see ways forward in almost every other place. This one's the hardest one. I can give you a couple ideas. Several years ago, just before the big our American Supreme Court decision uh, legalizing same-sex marriage, I was invited by two people. One was uh, Gabe Lyons of the Q conference. You may have heard of him. The other one was Andrew Sullivan, who is a gay... Catholic, I don't know how devout a Catholic, but he's a gay Catholic man who was a big proponent of same-sex marriage. The two of them brought together gay activists and evangelical leaders to just have a kind of discussion about just the subject. It was only two weeks before the big, big uh, decision. And what was interesting was there were two gay men there who were all about saying, we've got to learn to live together we've got to realize that just like there's different races and there's different uh, worldviews and different religions, we believe in pluralism. And uh, we, we shouldn't be steamrolling every single religion that has any kind of moral problems with homosexuality. We just can't do that. We, we, we need to learn to live together. Those two guys, one was Catholic in background. The other one was actually an atheist who was Jewish. But the other... Seven or eight people who were there said, "No way, no way, no way. Uh, we it's it's them or us. You know, we either going to have to we're going to have to destroy the church, or we're going to have to uh, make it illegal for them to talk about homosexuality. They actually said that make it illegal to speak up against it. There's no compromise. What was interesting, who is when we went around and what well, what's your background?' The other six or seven, if I remember correctly all had come up in evangelical churches and they'd really been mistreated really badly. I, I, I heard all of their, their, um, testimonies, you might say, and they were just really badly mistreated and they're the ones who are out for no compromise. Yes. And I, so I keep thinking it's almost like it's, I don't know how, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it, it, it could be that as time goes on, there will be a calming down. I think the one advantage here, of course, is that the gay activists are not really only against evangelical Christians. They're also against Muslims and Orthodox Jews and, uh, and Hindus and a whole lot of other people. And hopefully reality will bring them down to the idea of, you know, where there, there will have to be some kind of compromise. But the other thing, just to say quickly, is when I have spoken to people, is I try to say, "Well, Christianity, two things. Christianity, first of all, believes in practicing gender diversity in relationships." So, in uh, this is my story. In right now, in California, if you have more than a certain size business with a certain number of employees, and if you decide you are going to go public and be uh, you stock traded in public, you have to have at least one woman on your board of directors. So in other words, they don't want all male boards of directors. I so said, now, why would that be? So you ask the person, why do you think it's that crucial to have a woman on a board of directors of a, you know, why is it illegal to have only men on a, on a, you know, a, a publicly traded company? And they usually say, well, the female, okay, so well, then why wouldn't it, why can't it be illegal to say we don't want a family or a marriage with without a woman? What would be wrong with that? Okay, so that's, and in some ways, Christianity is is practicing a kind of level of diversity that our culture doesn't want to admit is necessary. The second, now, you know what I'm doing there, John, I'm using their own, you know, it's called subversive fulfillment. You're using the person's narrative against them. It's a little bit like a judo move. The other thing, though, is consent. Judo means the gentle way. It's the gentle way, yes. The other thing would be consent, and that is the idea of no sex outside of marriage. Um, and I say, uh, to my surprise, I can pull out three or four articles in the New York Times in the last two years where women felt that um, just giving consent at the moment. They, what they said was, at the moment, my, this guy was saying, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I take off this? Can I unhook this? Can I do this? And they said, yes, 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 yes. And then a month later or even a few weeks later. Uh, this guy didn't show me any, you know, I thought that we were going to have a relationship and he just, you know, he just used me. And he said, I want to take my consent back. And I know I can't do that. I know I can't charge that man now under our current laws with non-consensual sex. And yet I feel it was, and this one woman was writing and talking to her girlfriends about the fact that I feel like consent has to be more, more than just at the moment. It's got to be more than physical. It's got to be whole life consent. And they were just laughing at her. And I'm reading this thing and saying, uh, I I really think you can make a case. And I think women are going to be the ones who are going to believe this. That consent can't be just momentary. And it can't just be physical. And that we can make the case. Also, by the way, the Christianity, uh, you know, uh, Kyle Harper's book, um, From Shame to Sin, uh, on how Christianity changed uh, the, you know, the old classical Roman world when it came to sexuality. Non-consensual sex was a very Christian idea. He says, the ancient people believed there was such a thing as rape, of course, which is really violent. But he says, the reality was that any man uh, of a higher you know, class could actually have sex with almost anybody he wanted. And there was really no way to say no. And by modern standards, there's all kinds of rape happening. And the reason why we have a modern standards is because of Christianity. So I, I feel like the consent and the diversity are two, uh, you might say, they're weak spots in the dragon. If you're trying to find a place in the dragon scales where there's, there's a sensitivity. Um, and I actually could say Christianity has a view of consent and of diversity that I think will serve you better. Than the the secular version, I've actually had people say, you know, what they smile, they think it's clever, they say that's interesting. It's still just almost, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's a long way from being a a really strong argument. But anyway, I would say to anybody listening to this, that's a that's that, that's how you could develop that.
0: I had to ask Tim if he reckons there will ever be a happy coexistence between traditional Christian views of sex and the secular vision of sex, and what has to change on either side for that to happen. You'll have to head to our new bonus content for that one. More about that later. One thing that seems clear from my conversation with Tim is that he reckons the church has a lot of work to do. Christians have not led well on controversial questions like sex. In many cases, they've lost all moral credibility on this and other questions. I don't know how many times someone on social media has reacted to something positive I've said about Christianity with something like, why would I trust anything from the organisation that trashes same-sex love and covers up child abuse? Part of me wants to reply, hey, that's not entirely fair. And part of me says, "Mm, yeah, fair enough. Anyway, Tim Keller remains a huge fan of the institution of the church, or at least the millions of little institutions around the world that we call the local church. And he's pretty chipper about what might lie ahead for churches in our secularizing world. That's after the break. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that by making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid. You can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students and offer a comprehensive training for educators. Already there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated with over 600 students enrolled and thriving but there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted – chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Underceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling To Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morning to go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. To me,
1: being woke means that you recognize that the world is not a simple place, that everything is not all equal, that justice has not happened yet for everyone, and that there is a lot of work to be done. Being woke is like, eyes wide open, everything is clear, you can always see things that other people
0: can just ignore or they just don't know. Woke for me is just being outraged all the time and being able to stay human and feel outraged about injustice that is happening around me. It's being uncomfortable all the time and making sure that I'm speaking on behalf of those that can't speak up for themselves. Some people know what... These are some of the women behind Essence magazine. For them, the term woke just means being awake to justice. If you're asleep, you're just drifting through life. But if you're awake, if you are woke, you'll be outraged at communities and organizations that stifle progress toward fairness. And the church, it seems, is an easy target here. Christians are seen as patriarchal, heteronormative, climate ignorant, and yes, even racist. So I had to ask Tim about this cultural moment. You mentioned a moment ago that The church has historically been at the forefront of justice and equality, but now those things are often clubs wielded against the church. So my my question is, how do you think the church can navigate so-called wokeness culture? And I'm pretty sure using the word wokeness in that pejorative sense isn't going to help, but how, how does the church navigate these very strange times we're in?
1: Three things. Number one. Christians do have to not in any way uh, airbrush or whitewash their past. So we have to be fully honest about egregious injustices, past or present. Number two, we need to really do a better job of preaching justice in a way that's not moralistic. Uh, and I know I'm opening a big can of worms here, but I would just say, I hear a lot of good young evangelicals trying to preach justice, but it, it, it can come across at the end like, a kind of like a moralistic sermon in the end saying that no, we just need to go out there and help the poor and really care about justice and in the end, okay, how does grace work? How is that gospel? In what ways is that? I do think we, there definitely are ways to do this by the way. I know there are ways to do it, but I do think that younger evangelicals are going to have to figure out a way of talking about justice that doesn't end up being another moralistic guilt trip. But number three, there is an overwokeness Um I'm not saying you've got to read the New York Times to find it, but basically, in the last four or five months, the New York Times is really backtracking over the way so many of its younger authors and journalists were writing the year of the George Floyd death and all the, um, the um, uh, all of the you know, the demonstrations and the rioting, where they were they were saying things like, and I saw it, they were saying things like the idea of crime is a racist, capitalist idea. Okay, which is kind of what Marx did believe. If you were a criminal, it was society made you that. Uh, Or things like that, that punctuality is being white. Good grades are being white. We need to get rid of standardized tests for doctors because only white people pass them. And now what's happening in the last four or five months, the New York Times is actually starting to walk that stuff back enormously. And they're also saying because there is a backlash against it, a lot of it was very over the top. Um, and uh, I do think that there there are going there's going to be some reckoning. Um, and maybe, you know, in America, there was a very, very, very major movement to uh, cut police departments in half. And all that's being walked back. It's all being walked back by and by by the way, by generally speaking, by African-American mayors now. Uh, who are who are just hearing from their own people saying, are you crazy? Anyway, so um, I, I feel like in a way, instead of going after the most egregious over reactions by the, the, the progressive left and saying, ha, see how stupid that is, let, let them work it out. They're, they're going to walk a lot of it back. We should be thinking about ourselves. We should be admitting where we were complicit with injustice. And we need to figure out ways of preaching what the Bible says about justice in a, in a grace gospel oriented way
0: so do you think there also needs to be a walking back on the evangelical side of its anti-wokeness it's anti-critical race theory it's anti-social justice warrior rhetoric
1: yes because in fact see we're being sucked into the uh the, the conservative news media because it is it's it's it is a it's a form of pornography in other words look at this incredibly stupid thing that this person said this woke person said this unbelievable, and boy, there's a lot of them. Uh, there was a, just this last week, uh, there was a um, article in New York Times. It was kind of end of the year editorial. And the editorial said, um, uh, who's afraid of critical race theory? And the man, who's very much a liberal, said, on the one hand, the what the right wing is doing is they're trying to find every single stupid thing that people have said on the left and woke, woke people said in order to say, we don't have to talk about racism as a problem anymore. But then he said, the reality is however, that he felt like the news media was willing to take a lot of young uh, woke people who were saying crazy things over the last year or two that were really outrageous, were really wrong, Um, and and have actually, in a sense, undermined the progressive movement because they have themselves platformed people who were just angry, um, who were saying uh, extraordinarily unkind things, things that actually were, in a sense, anti-white racism, He even admitted that that was happening. And he says, now we've damaged ourselves because you've given conservatives all this ammunition. I think Christians ought to put the ammunition down. It's just, that's, just not, that's just not how we do it. We're supposed to be lifting up another way of going. And I'm not sure just simply saying we don't have a race problem, like the conservatives are saying in America, or the left, which is almost a hopeless feeling like there's no way out because everything in society is hopelessly racist. And even it's unconsciously so. And I think those two groups are not we we definitely are looking at at putting out there a, a different way. and you know what, even though I'm not a Pentecostal, John, Pentecostal churches are the most multi-ethnic human organizations in the history of the world, and I do believe eventually evangelicalism will be that too, and I think that's going to be that's going to create credibility for our talking about justice.
0: Let's press pause. I've got a five minute Jesus for you. In his provocative parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells how a Jewish man was robbed and left the dead on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's an ancient road still visible and walkable to this day. I'd love to take you there sometime. A temple priest walks past in Jesus' story, uh, unwilling to assist. A Levite, who's a a priestly assistant, uh, also walks past and does nothing. Then a Samaritan turns up. He stops and cares for the man. He bandages his wounds, pays for lodging in a local inn, and returns later to check on the patient and to pay for any further expenses. As a result of this parable, we now use the proverbial Good Samaritan to mean someone who does similar acts of charity but one of the keys to the story in jesus day is that samaritans were the ethno-religious enemies of the jewish people jesus and his first followers were all jews right so by making a samaritan not a fellow jew the hero of his parable jesus was simultaneously critiquing his own people for not living up to god's commandments and he was insisting that his followers were to show their compassion across ethnic, cultural and even religious boundaries. Jesus ends the parable with the stark statement, go and do likewise. See, that's the point. Christians are to cross ethnic and cultural boundaries with their lives, their compassion and mission. And this became one of the genuine peculiarities of Christianity from the time of Jesus to today. There were very few specific cultural badges people had to wear in order to be Christian. There was no sacred language that adherents had to learn. There were no uh, dietary laws or dress code. There were no particular careers Christians should avoid apart from the immoral ones. Nor were there categories of people, racial, creedal, or even moral that believers shouldn't eat meals with. After all, Jesus himself had been known as the friend of sinners. The church also had no distinctive ethnic profile. See, Christianity started for its, you know, first five to ten years amongst Semitic peoples, Galileans and Judeans. But within about 20 years, it was embraced by Indo-Europeans in Asia Minor, Greeks and Italians, as well as North Africans. Within 200 years, it had spread amongst Arabs, uh, Gauls, that's the French, the Spanish and the Celts of Britain. Even today, you'll find roughly equal numbers of Christians in, say, Europe, 26%, uh, Latin America and the Caribbean, 24%, and sub-Saharan Africa, another 24%. And according to Pew Research, the largest cohort of professing Christians, even in the U.S. today, is women of colour. Crossing boundaries from Jew to Samaritan and far beyond has been a Christian specialty from the beginning. You can press play now. Can you imagine there will ever be a Christian Renaissance or even revival?
1: Yeah, because for, you know monasticism. Who would have thought that up? I mean, you know, I mean, you monasticism was, and I know a lot of people are saying monasticism, you know, retreat. John knows, uh, oh, oh, listeners, Don knows the monastics were the missionaries. They're the people who won Europe. They're the reason why at least most of you in Australia are, if you are a Christian, you are a Christian because the monks went up there and they, it was brilliant. They didn't just show up and preach. They created communities. Mm. They created hospitals, schools, poverty programs, farms. Yeah, absolutely. It's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, we really have to do an episode on monks and monasteries. I had a scholar from Columbia University in New York all lined up for this recently. But sadly, she got sick a couple of days before I was due to meet her. Anyway, stay tuned for that one. Monks changed your world, the whole Western world.
1: So the monastic movement, which also was a renewal movement, uh, because Christendom comes along and everybody suddenly becomes a Christian. Instead of 10% of the population being Christian, suddenly everybody's a Christian. And the monastic movement was partly a renewal movement to get back to real Christianity. was also a missionary movement. Who would have thought that up? Who would have thought the Reformation up exactly? Who would have thought the Great Awakening up? I mean, I put it this way, everything God, every new thing God does is unprecedented until it's not. <laughs> and I, so... I can actually imagine uh, reformations and renewals, but my guess is a really good one is going to be something I, you and I can't actually imagine exactly right now, but I, I, still, I can even imagine some, so sure, sure. because, you know, look, Jesus, the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That There's no expiration date on that
0: offer. Tim has been contemplating the ongoing life of the church in the world, even while he's staring down the barrel of his own mortality. He had thyroid cancer when he was in his 50s, and he recovered well from that. Now at 71, his pancreatic cancer has a very different prognosis. He tells me that he and his wife have been managing pretty well for close to two years now. But with this cancer, he says, you don't know what's coming tomorrow. But he says this balancing on the edge of eternity has helped him develop some really helpful habits. Now, I know the word habit isn't a popular one today. We sometimes think of habits as mere routines that lack spontaneity and reality. But Tim says he's found three habits, three spiritual disciplines that are pathways to authenticity and flourishing.
1: The one habit was actually having prayer and Bible reading more than once a day. Uh, daily office. Sounds awfully Anglican, I know. So. But in other words, morning and evening prayer. Mm-hmm. As opposed, or midday prayer, whatever. But in other words, not just once. Just, I just needed it to frame me myself up. So I was going to read four chapters a day in the Bible, then read three in the morning and one at night or something like that. It was much better than reading all four in the morning. Number one. Number two, immersion in the Psalms. I know that's book of common prayer, too. But actually, um, even though I'm Presbyterian, I do the, um, ever since the, the 50s, I mean, ever since my 19 my, my 50s, I have done, not perfectly, of course, but I've basically done the uh, Book of Common Prayer, uh, all the Psalms in a, in a month. Hmm. Uh, at least read through them or prayed through them yeah. once a month. Uh, immersion in the Psalms for various reasons. The, the third thing is... <clears throat> John Owen has two books, Mortification of Sin and Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. He basically believes that sanctification has, you might say, a downstroke and an upstroke. The downstroke is mortification. That's not so much repentance for what you have done wrong. It's recognizing the besetting sins of your heart that basically trigger actual sins in other words, besetting sins are more like idols of the heart rather than actual, um, you know, an idol of approval, an, an idol of um, performance, an idol of um, success or an idol of power. They're, they're more like a, a sinful stance of your heart that, that issue in particular sins. And mortification is recognizing those and finding ways of thinking about Jesus Christ in a way that actually uh, shrinks those. In other words, actually having a monthly or a weekly time in which you actually look at the your, your your four or five or six most besetting sins. Actually, I used to have four, and then some. Kathy knows. Like ten years ago, I it was it got so bad I just hated getting older. And she said, "I think I think it's time." See, that hatred of getting older actually does lead to certain sins, and it definitely is a, an unwillingness to admit things about. It's, it's, it is it's definitely a, 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 an unwillingness to accept that God is, and not my health and my strength, is my real hope. And so I, I that's what I mean by that. I graduated that up as to one of the things that at least every month I looked at. Repented of, sought God's help for, found Bible verses that helped me. So that's mortification. The other part of the down, that's the downstroke. The other upstroke is thinking about Jesus Christ till his beauty and his glory comes through. Owen is amazing at that. He says, look, it's not enough just to say Jesus was exalted. You know, to the right hand of the Father. He says, that's a, that's a fact. But he says, if you love him, aren't you excited that the one that you love and who got so much rejection has got that kind of honor now? He, he, he'll say, meditate on that so that you actually, it draws your heart out. Don't just say, oh, yeah, he's that's to, to the right hand of the father and he said you know you know recently my youngest son just got a per- big promotion and he is now uh, works for the city of New York and he is the deputy director of all urban planning in the borough of Queens and you if you I don't know John I don't know where your your, your kids are and all this so is the when one of my kids gets honored boy because I love him boy do I get excited about that it's just incredible and then I'm thinking, wait a minute, if I'm, if, I, if, I have, if I'm having these two or three really great days just because I found out that Jonathan got this promotion, here's John Owen saying, why aren't you filled with joy over the promotion that Jesus got, you know? So about once a month, I try to take a couple of hours, usually on a Saturday morning, where I go back over my, my you know, do mortification, and you might say contemplation of God's glory, Jesus' glory in particular, and just try to go deeper. So a monthly retreat, uh, a, uh, you know, morning and evening going through the Psalms and just sticking with that, no matter how horrible you feel. That's the main thing. Just it doesn't matter. Just don't stop it. Don't stop it because you'll get the feelings back if you don't give up. But if you give up, then there's nothing.
0: Well, no one could accuse Tim of giving up over these last two years of treatment and wondering. He's continued to preach, record things to camera, uh, Zoom with people, encourage and mentor and write wherever he feels he can do some good. I was moved and challenged, frankly. And in a somewhat self-indulgent moment, I couldn't help asking him for some advice on walking through the darkness. Tim, earlier this year, um, I watched my best friend of 40 years, uh, die in my lounge room after five months of palliative care. Um, he was really strong in the Lord to his final breath. Um, but I admit it, it has really hit me (laughs) now. It's the frailty of things that I just find so disturbing, um, to watch my mate go down so i want to ask you if you don't mind um tell us how you're journeying spiritually with stage four cancer and i'm not looking for my own private therapy session with tim keller here um i'm sure my listeners just want to know how how does one walk through the darkness what kind of cancer did your friend have it was a um squamous cell carcinoma that presented in the jaw yeah and then took uh, took over his yeah. head yeah
1: yeah you know, you know the horrible thing about when you get cancer you because you, you you know you become an expert kathy says there's two ways to become an officer one was you go to you go to military school and you get commission the other is what she called field field promotions hmm. in, other yeah. words, in the in the midst of battle you can become a, you can go from a from an enlisted man to being an officer just yeah. because of your experience and i What happens is if you actually have cancer, it's like you're kind of a cancer doctor. The minute we found out that I had pancreatic cancer, which is not the same as thyroid cancer, which I had 20 years ago, when they immediately said, oh, we can treat this. Uh, The first time I talked to my doctor uh, about the pancreatic cancer, he says, you're gonna die of this. We don't have any way really of uh, curing this. And what that has done to both of us is it has just shown us uh, that we were living in a veil of illusion that we would live forever. We actually really were. Everybody says, no, 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 no. You you are, you are. Because what happens is the things of the earth grow strangely dim. And when that happens, you say, gosh, God isn't really enough for me. I, I really don't have enough of a grip on God to get through the day. I was really living off of a... Uh, a a deep belief, a deep denial of my morta- my mortality and a belief that the things of this world are really the things that are going to satisfy me. But they never really have. And yet I keep going back and keep going back. There's a place in Tolkien, you know, where Sam is falling asleep after Frodo. They're on their way to Mount Doom and at one point he looks up and he sees a star twinkling. It's a very famous place where he says, uh, uh, suddenly um, you know, cold and clear, like a shaft, the realization pierced him that, uh, the shadow, you know, the evil of this world is a passing thing. There's light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And he immediately just fell into a deep, untroubled sleep. And what happens is, is that the, the, uh, having cancer and, and, which means the things that you really were relying on for your soul's repose, they just don't do it anymore. It's God or nothing. And when you go to Him, guess what? There's a communion with God which is available that at a level that you just never you just never felt the need to push through to find. And when you when you do and you push through, you find that it's there. There is not enough for you to, to get through the day, but then actually the things around you are, you, you, you recognize as greater gifts than, than you were looking at them as before. In other words, in some ways I'm happier than I used to be. That sounds very weird to say. In some ways, you know, uh, it would, you're, you're, I can enjoy the, the water, the sun, the you know, a, a good meal, and, and say there's a there's a level of communion with God that uh, is available that you really just have never been I don't know motivated enough to find I think that's right so.
0: Tim Keller you've been extremely generous uh, with your time and uh, I just want to say thank you so much and I think of you and pray for you you're certainly in in my mind and a lot of people's minds we will continue to pray
1: yeah uh, I please do I I uh, when my work's done that'll be it yeah. but it's, it is interesting. I mean, it has been 19 months since I was diagnosed, which my doctors say is, um, extraordinary. And, uh, but on the other hand is no it's cancer. It could just turn around tomorrow and suddenly you're gone. But, uh, and I'm, I'm glad to live like that. I, I mean, I'm in, it, I'm at a good spot where I say I actually might have years left. On the other hand, I might not at all. And it's really important for me to live with a certain amount of hope um both ways so i've got absolute hope in christ but i've also got the possibility that god might say yeah you know i got some surprises up my sleeve before i take (laughs) you and that's kind of nice to have it both ways so in a way i'm i'm in a i'm in a win-win situation john
0: Well, I hope you found that as stimulating and challenging as I did. I have a confession to make. We recorded much more of Tim Keller than we could fit into this episode without blowing out the format completely. We've got another half hour with Tim, exploring the state of Christianity in the world and how he reckons the church could address some of the key defeater beliefs of this moment. If you want to hear that bonus content and tons more, we've started a new service here at Underceptions.com. Right now, you can become one of our undeceivers and get access to uncut interviews like the one with Tim and a bunch more coming down the pipeline. You can get full episode transcripts, access to a private Facebook group where you get the inside running on what we're up to, plus invitations to special events and a whole bunch more. Just go to undeceptions.com and click on the big link, Become an Undeceiver. It'll set you back a lousy $5 Aussie a month. That's about 35 cents US. Not really, but it's pretty cheap anyway. And every cent of this new subscription service goes back into the show. Along with the donations, this is how we're going to keep Undeceptions thriving. And while you're there, you'll also see that Laurel Moffat's new podcast, Small Wonders, is underway and ready for your listening pleasure. All the buttons you need to subscribe to her insightful, peace-inducing observations are right there next to the podcast logo, part of the expanding Undeceptions Network. Now, next episode, we're talking about The Kingdom Come. Heaven, what it is and what it isn't. See ya. Underceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kayleigh Payne, and directed by Mark Hadley. Editing by Richard Humwy. Underceptions is the flagship podcast of Underceptions.com. Letting the Truth Out. deceptions podcast